Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 358, and we're kicking off a new series. It's a listener story series, and we've done that before, but it's always been after the hunt, uh, which makes a ton of sense to get some of you guys, listeners on the show, to talk about your hunting experiences, stories, what went wrong, what went well, and what was learned along the way. But in this series, we're doing a before and after. And so for the next several episodes here, as we head into September of 2022, we're going to be talking with listeners of the show about their hunting plans before the hunt. It's an opportunity to discuss with them their planning, their research, their training, their gear, and more. And also an opportunity for those listeners to ask us some questions that we can weigh in on. So we've never done podcasts like this before. We'd love to have your feedback. I hope it's something that you enjoy. In terms of feedback, you can always contact us directly via email to podcast at exomountgear.com. In terms of this series, we have listeners with a wide variety of hunts and species and experience. There's elk hunts and deer hunts and bear hunts and trips to Adak Island in Alaska and a whole bunch more. So I hope you guys enjoy the series. We're going to be releasing these even more frequently than we standard even more frequently than our standard release schedule. So stay tuned. There's a bunch of these coming again as we head into September. And then obviously later this fall, we'll be chatting with these same exact hunters to hear how things went and what they learned and how you can apply that to your future hunts. If you have a specific question for us, look for a link in the show description that says leave us a message. And you can use whatever device you're on, whether that's your phone, your tablet, your computer, and quickly leave us an audio message with a question that you have for the show. And then we can answer that question on a future Monday Minute episode. As you come back, here's this conversation with Taylor, a listener of the show, about his very first elk and bear hunt in Idaho. Let's dive in. Well, Taylor, welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast. I'm excited to chat, man. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me on. It's an awesome opportunity. I've been listening to y'all for a while. So, oh, cool. Yeah, I, dude, I really do love these listener stories. And we've never done up until this summer this series where we're doing kind of the before and after. Um, and but doing the before episodes have been fun just to talk about like planning and expectations and what questions do you guys have and all that. And then obviously it's going to be a blast to follow up and hear how things go. Yeah. Part of the fun is actually planning it. In my opinion, it's like, man, getting all the gear and practicing with your bow and everything. That, that's, that's part of the fun for me too. Just as much as. Yeah. I mean, it really is. That's one thing that, you know, when I started going out West, being from Missouri and, you know, this was years ago before I was associated with XO or anything else. It was just, a regular guy like you are is like, man, I want to make this happen. I want to go do it. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was more than a year really that I was planning my first trip. Um, and then did that. And every year since there's always, you know, um, a hunt that I'm looking forward to, or thankfully these days, usually a few hunts I'm looking forward to, but yeah, kind of that year round, like giving you something to work towards, be excited about, even keep you accountable with things like training and fitness. Like I just can't imagine not really having that as part of my life. And that's, that's a huge part of it too. The, the accountability and, and the, with the training portion of it. Cause like, 
And if you don't have anything you're working towards, it's like, man, why do I really want to get up and go work out or run or hike with my pack or anything? So yeah. it's like, it's a benefit. It's beneficial for all areas of life in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Um, so just context for listeners, like, uh, again, these listener stories, there's a bunch of guys, uh, just like you and me who are regular guys out there tuning in. And it's always fun to hear the background. So you're currently in Texas, but originally from Indiana, right? No, actually, I was born and raised here in Houston, and I moved to Indiana probably, I think, my sophomore year of high school. Okay. And then I moved back down here right before I turned 21. So really, the deer hunting kind of started up there for the most part. I did a couple hunts with my dad and my uncle and one time by myself, but never got close enough with anything. But that's where it started. <laughs> so do you still just pretty much deer hunt in Texas now that you're back there? So last year I got my first elk on a, on a private ranch here. It wasn't really much of a hunt, but it was still a really cool experience. And then, um, I have a friend who's got a pretty decent sized ranch here who lets me go out there and hunt and shoot some of his does. And actually I got a hunt coming up here in a couple of weeks to get a black buck over there. And, uh, he's really cool about it. like, he, he's big bow hunter. So it'd be good practice to go up there and still get an animal and great meat. So it'll be a, pretty cool experience but yeah most most thing here in texas it's a little bit different in texas because we don't have any public land so it's like okay a bunch of guys get together get a bunch of booze and hang out in a tree stand or in, or in a deer blind and drunk from the night before still and see if you can shoot a deer it's, it's not the same as it is out in west and, and out in the west so it's like i don't know that doesn't appeal to me as much as out in the west but it's still it's got its times where it's fun yeah yeah it's just it's totally different as you said yeah what was the appeal to get out West for you and kind of like, I guess, when did that interest maybe start? But then sometimes there's a difference between that interest starting and when you actually get serious about committing to make it happen. So what does that journey look like for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Me, me and my dad have talked about doing this kind of stuff for my entire life. And I wish he'd be going on this trip with me, but it's his 35th year anniversary. So he's not gonna be able to go this time, but I uh, mean, it's, it's pretty much been since I was a little kid, I grew up shooting a traditional bow with him and we would shoot in the yard at 3d targets growing up every night when he got home from work. And it's like, man, I've always wanted to do that. And for some reason I turned 30 this year. So it's like, okay, if I really want to do this, then I'm the only person who's going to be able to go do it and make myself go do it. So I just need to make the decision to go do it. And so that's what I did this year. And I bought, bought a tag on a whim, honestly, and and really started getting at it in the gym. And that's, that's what kind of, kind of sparked it. And of course your podcast really helped as well. It's like, man, I hear all the listener stories and all these, these normal guys, just like you said, going out here doing it. It's like, I mean, if these guys can do it, then I can do it. There's, there's, I don't know. It's just how it kind of started, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool, man. That's so fun to hear how, you know, decades ago you shooting in the yard with your dad like sparked that interest. And then now who you are two decades later and, you know, obviously sure. I have hunting in between, but like really going on this type of adventure now really is connected to way back then. For sure. And he's, he's, he, I really want him to come, but he's not going to be able to come. And he's just, he's like, he's always asking me, Hey, so what you doing about this? And what are you going to eat out there? And here, you want to get a hammock so you can get up off the ground in case a bear comes. I'm like, dad, <laughs> he's, he's just as invested in it as I am. So it's really cool to hear him, to hear him really getting excited for me about it. You know, that you call hammocks bear burritos, right? But yeah. That's what I was like, man, that, that, doesn't sound, that it sounds good, but in reality, I don't think it actually works. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Um, so you said getting a tag on a whim, tell us what tag, or I think 
it'd be correct to say tags you have uh, just super high level, like what state, what species, et cetera. Yeah. So um, I did some research and like, okay, how can I do this without getting a guide? Cause guide services are, are fairly expensive. And it's like, man, I, I get the guide has a lot more knowledge than I have, but it's like, if I did it on my own, I, th- I feel like it'd be a little bit more, um, how, how do you say it? It'd be more of an accomplishment for me. And it would, it would just be, it'd feel better, honestly. And um, so I looked up over the counter tags and Idaho was the first one to pop up. So it's like, okay, cool. And let's see if there's any tags left. And there was a couple of tags and a couple of different units left. And so I just bought one. I bought an elk tag, um, not all the way up far north in Idaho, but pretty far north up kind of by the Clearwater River, I think. And um, so I bought an elk tag and kind of immersed myself in the elk hunting world, trying to figure out what I need to do and some strategies and here about a month and a half ago, uh, born and raised outdoors. I think you're familiar with those guys. I think they're on your podcast here not too long ago, but they did like a big spring bear hunt thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, that'd be cool to get a bear tag as well. And so I looked it up and it's like, oh man, you can get a bear tag pretty easily in, in Idaho as well. So I was like, well, let me try and get a black bear tag and see how that goes. And if I see a black bear and not see an elk, and then at least I can get a black bear over an elk and still be somewhat successful on the hunt. So that's how I ended up getting the elk and the bear tag. And this all is archery. Yes. All archery. You mentioned yeah. shooting uh, traditional bows earlier. And I, I think when you first reached out, you talked about maybe using a recurve, but you then switched to uh, planning right. at least the last I heard using a compound. For sure. So um, the whole plan was, cause my uncle, he would disown me if I ever picked up a compound bow. Cause he's kind of like that. And it's, it's hilarious that he's like that. So we've always shot traditional bows my entire life. And so we have this really awesome archery shop here in Texas. It's called a uh, Texas archery here in Houston. And um, I went there with a couple of buddies and I had been shooting real consistent, but it, I live smack dab, smack dab in the center of downtown Houston. So I can't shoot really more than 15 yards into my garage with my traditional bow. And like, well, that's not a very realistic shot. I mean, 50 yards is probably gonna be a realistic shot. So we went out to this, this bow ranger, they have all these 3d targets and I'm launching them at 40 yards and I'm hitting my target, but it's not consistent. And these guys who hadn't picked up their bow in a year, pick it up and put two arrows next to each other at 50 yards. And it's like, okay, I need to take a step back and like really take a look at it and, if I'm going to shoot at an animal, I want to make sure that I'm as accurate as possible. And I don't have enough time between now and September to really get that accurate at 50 yards. Cause I don't have enough time to shoot that far. So I'm going to go ahead and get a traditional bow. And that bow shop, they spent a few hours with me, measuring me up and teach me how to shoot that, that compound bow. And that I can shoot pretty good group at 50 yards. And it's like, man, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big difference. So yeah. That's what I decided to go with that. I think it'd be just a little bit more realistic for, for this hunt and maybe just keep shooting my traditional boat throughout the rest of the year and see about next year to see if I can get a little more consistent at 40 yards. So that's just this year you started shooting a compound, like pretty much the first time ever. Correct. Yeah, no, it's, I bought a compound bow for the first time ever. And first time I ever pulled it back. Funny story. When I bought that bow, I was shooting it and I think I had it cranked up to like 70 pounds and like, okay, well, this is cool. But my, my shoulder was getting tired and like my fifth shot on that bow, uh, my release flew out of my hand and it, and it hit, uh, what is it? The cable management system on that bow and it shattered it. And the guys at the bow shop were laughing at me like, yeah, dude, this dude doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> But they were really cool and they fixed it for me. They didn't charge me to fix it for me. So it was, it was, they're, they're great over there. So it's all learning. That's cool. It's not, um, it's unique to have like 
again, decades shooting trad and then going to compound um, for your very first hunt and like on a pretty short time frame. Right. Did, are you using just like an index finger style trigger release? No, I'm actually using a, um, what is it? One of the stand thumb releases. Okay. Yeah. yeah I forget which one. It's an orange one. And the, the book, man, the bow shop, I can't, I can't say enough good things about them. They said, here, here's the different types of releases. You can do a finger index. That's, that's crawling. A thumb is, is walking. And then the hinge release is running. He says, you got to crawl before you run. I'm like, okay, well that makes sense. And I picked up that thumb release. I mean, that actually feels kind of good. So he said, well, go with it. Go. It feels good. So mm-hmm. That's what I did. And I'm, I've been really, really happy with it. It's been great. I can see how that's a, I mean, it's still so different, but I can see how that's a, I don't want to say easier transition from being a trad guy to going at least to a handheld release versus like a finger trigger. I feel right. like that's like even a greater departure, not only mechanically, but like, you know, there's so much tied to that, like in your mind, you know, of executing the shot. That's so different with just literally this finger and a trigger, you know? Right. It's, 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 it's a completely different world. My dad keeps telling me, he said, dude, you're, you're venturing into something. I have no idea what you're doing. And he's watching me shoot it. And I'm like, yeah, but it, it's really, there's a lot of similarities to it, but there's a lot of differences to it as well. But with that release, I have three fingers on that release. And it's just like having the three fingers on the traditional bone, finding my anchor point and mm-hmm. letting the arrow go. So I guess that's probably another reason why I chose that thing. What boat did you end up with? Um, I got a Matthews. I think it's a V3X, a 29 inch. Yeah, cool. And uh, it's a cool little bow, man. It's like they're they're pretty incredible little little machines. It's like with with the cams and and how quiet that bow. Was. I couldn't believe how quiet it was. And yeah. It shoots super straight right out of the box. I paper tuned it after like probably a month of shooting it, and I didn't really have to adjust anything. It shot perfect bullet holes. And I'm like, man, this is this is a cool little. This is cool. I really yeah. enjoy it. <laughs> so that first trip to the bow shop shooting i'm assuming you shot quite a few different compound bows mm-hmm. they're all new to you right matthews is just kind of like what felt best yeah and uh, so i went in there not expecting to buy a bow and uh, i've always had in the back of my head because i have a couple family members who shoot like my my brother-in-law he shoots a, a hoyt and he says if you don't buy a hoyt then don't buy a bow i'm like okay well that sounds like the chevy dodge ram and yeah. ford all that kind of debate and I looked at the Matthews, pulled the Matthews back, and it just like, man, this thing, this thing feels good. A little bit different than the Hoyt, and that's the one I just went with. So you got tags, start shooting a bow. Sounds like you've been practicing. Um, another thing, you said you're in the smack dab middle of downtown Houston, Texas, which is a little bit different than elk country. Yeah, it's, it's training. What's training looked like for you? <laughs> So training's been pretty fun. So uh, my dad's actually a CrossFit instructor up in the north side of Houston. I don't get to go to his gym, but he um, he helps me out. And we designed some workouts here in my house. I've, I've turned my garage into a full gym, put the mats down, got a, got a squat rack. And then um, the, the crib the crib attachment for the XO packs that y'all have, that thing is awesome, man. So that's, that's where I really started with. I bought that thing, put it on my XO pack, and I just started hiking. I put 60 pounds on my back. And so... I'm about two blocks from the Metro train pickup thing. Hmm. And they have this staircase. That's I think it's 62 steps. So it's not a whole bunch, but what I'll do is I put that 60 pounds on my back, hike over there with my dog and I'll walk up and down that thing until I can't move anymore. And then I'll walk <laughs> back home and it's like, well, that's the only thing I'm going to be able to do here in Houston to get some elevation. Yeah. And, uh, 
So that's, that's what I've been doing. People look at me crazy because I got my boots on and my shorts and my pack on. I had a cop come up to me, dude, what are you doing out here? <laughs> I'm like, dude, I'm going to get my ass kicked by the mountains in September. I'm just trying to minimize that. And he says, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's great, man. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll just go for a longer hike, like a two or three mile hike with just a pack on no elevation, just so that I'm breaking in the boots more and getting my ankles stronger, my knees stronger, stuff like that. And then I put 105 pounds on it and try to walk a mile or so with that. And that's a whole different world the, when you get a hundred pounds on it. Mm-hmm. So, but that, that's been a lot of my training. And then I do a lot of squats. I do a lot of, uh, uh what is it? Weighted step back lunges, some Bulgarian squats, a lot of box jumps, just mm-hmm. a lot of leg stuff to make sure that, that, that I'm, my legs are strong enough to do this. And every morning I usually go for a little bit of a jog as well. So trying to get my cardio up. Cause I know that the elevation is going to be different breathing that air. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that's, that's pretty, pretty much essentially what my, my, my training has been looking like. What have you selected for boots and how have you tested that so i mean are you is it the time that you're spending your boots kind of here like on these surfaces in the city on concrete type thing yeah that's that's what it's been i try to go out in in the woods a little bit with them as much as i can um there's a couple like rocky roads for some weird reason down here where it's undeveloped road here in houston and uh, i'll try to walk on those rocks and try to get my ankles move around in them but i end up going with some uh, crispy boots i don't exactly remember which ones i got um, I think it's like GTX Idaho or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got those on a recommendation from a buddy and he says he's, he's got a big ranch out in West Texas. And he's like, dude, these boots are great. I don't get any hot spots. He said they might not work for you, but try them out. And so I bought them and tried them out and man, I think I got lucky because they feel good. I don't ever rub any raw spots in my feet, no hot spots. And my feet don't usually hurt unless I'm carrying the 105 pounds, but I think that's just the weight. <laughs> But that's what I've been walking with them. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, just finding like the little ways you can do, like, as you said, even if you can get a rocky road and start to introduce something that's not completely flat, or if you had like, say there's a rocky or country road with like an embankment where the shoulder kind of falls off, like actually doing kind of walking on that uneven shoulder, that bank, okay, uh, just to simulate some like side hilling type stuff. For sure. Um, for sure. You know, just that little bit of exposure to that can both help you determine like, are those boots fitting well, but also, you know, it's just like building things differently. Um, all those little muscles and tendons, like in your really uh, all of your lower body, I was to say your ankles and stuff, but really extends upwards, but just getting yeah. on those weird surfaces and like exposing yourself to that. Uh, for sure. If you can, how you can is definitely something that could be helpful. I mean, we got Buffalo Bayou that runs right through smack dab center of Houston. So I could probably go over there and do that. That's, I didn't even think that's a great idea. So that's what I'm gonna start doing too. That'd be good. So your, your research into let's call it elk hunting specifically. So not talking gear or anything like that, but more understanding elk behavior, calling, finding elk, you know, anything under hunting elk specifically, what does that look like? I think you mentioned in one of the emails you did like the elk 101 course for example is that right yeah so i actually used y'all's discount code that you gave out on one of your podcasts for the elk 101 course and like uh man that, that that's been a there's so much knowledge in there and that guy who, who puts it on it's like man this guy uh, who knows how many elk this guy's killed and if there's anybody to learn from this is this is the guy to learn it from and it's so detailed and it was great and um 
watch, I listen to a lot of podcasts too. And, um, a lot of articles. So I have this, I have a book here actually sitting on my table. It's uh, Steve Renella's book of all people for meat eater. And he's for the big game. It's a uh, hunting, butchering and cooking wild game. And it's been pretty great. And there's a lot of information in that too, on different tactics on, on where to move when it, like if the elk is down at the bottom of this base and you're at the top, how to play the wind and move over to it and not get caught by the wind. And that's that I've been reading quite a few books on that. A lot of articles, your podcast has helped a lot for that. Um, but the elk one on one course, I can't, I can't say enough good things about it. That that's been pr- pretty much the majority of my, my knowledge that I've learned from. Yeah. I'm sure you've been soaking so much up. It's maybe hard to like pinpoint stuff, but are there any yeah, sure. standout like takeaways? Man, the, the big one, the big one for me is um, the wind is playing the wind. Right. Yeah. And because it here in Houston, it's super flat and I don't really have anywhere to practice kind of doing that. So for me, that's what I'm going to have to really focus on the most. And it seems like that's the most important. I think I heard you say it one time on your podcast where it's like, man, you can fool elk's ears, you can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. And so I guess that's the big thing that I'm most concerned about. And the, the biggest one that I'm really trying to focus on is playing the wind. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously critical and I'm, I'm sure in all the podcasts and stuff you've consumed, just like understanding the basics of thermals and how mm-hmm. those are moving at different times of day. And you can't always a hundred percent go on a schedule like that, but it's generally true. And just kind of being aware of that, paying attention to approaches and knowing, Hey, this, this elk's here, but my approach needs to look a certain way because of wind. Um, yeah. I mean, that stuff's going to make a big difference for you for sure. Yeah, for sure. And then, so I actually got the Phelps bugle, the easy bugler, whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. so I practice with that at home and have a little cow call. So the, the calling, the calling seems to be pretty fun. Uh, but it seems like everybody's got a different opinion on callings. Like some people call all the time. That's all they do. And then the other people just call very rarely. It's like, well, what's the right answer. And so that's another one that I'm kind of focused on trying to figure out right now with all the content that I'm consuming. Yeah. That's a tough one. Cause I don't, I mean, there's, there's different layers to that. Like number one, there isn't a right answer necessarily. Um, right. sometimes you don't know until, the area you're in and the elk you're hunting, how effective calling is going to be. Right. Um, and then at the same time, you know, there's guys like you mentioned born and raised earlier, like they love to call and they will, they'll potentially leave elk that aren't receptive to calls to go find elk that are receptive to calls because it's like, okay, here's, here's our primary hunting strategy and, and method. We want to hunt elk effectively with that method um, yeah even if that means like we need to maybe go find some different elk um i mean that happens that isn't always the case it's not like they'll strictly only call elk in but um there's definitely cases where it's like yeah there's potentially some elk here but based on circumstances whatever they're not responsive we may keep going and find some that are so it is like i mean i still run into that especially in newer areas that i hunt of knowing how aggressive, how vocal do I want to be? And sometimes that's just, yeah, like perceiving the elk, but also just thinking about what, what is the hunting pressure like? How deep into the season are we? Uh, do I feel like they've been called out a lot from hunters? Um, do I feel like they're in a stage of the rutting process where they maybe have their guard down a little bit? Um, yeah, yeah, there's no, there's no easier right answer to that one for sure. 
Yeah, that's another thing I haven't really taken too much thought into, as you just said, that reminded me of that is the hunting pressure, how much hunting pressure is going to be in the area. That's because that that throws a whole nother wrench in, in your plans as well, from what I understand. And it's like, man, okay, so if you got a guy over here calling, how am I going to tell if that's a guy calling or if that's the actual elk calling? <laughs> yeah, no, that's real for sure. And one thing I would say too is like just thinking of even mistakes I've made um, in the past is, like if, if, the, if you say like, theoretically it's okay, I hear an elk, maybe I don't even see him, but I hear him bugling, um, across this draw, across this drainage. He seems to kind of be bugling on his own, like, and part of it's just the excitement, but like in some of my early days, I would, I would call and bugle at elk that were already bugling, uh-huh. partially because it's like really cool to have that interaction. For but sure. I've also realized in most cases now, if like an elk is already bugling and is bugling consistently enough that I feel like I have an opportunity to be aware of his location, whether he's stationary or he is moving, but at least I can keep up with his direction of movement by his calling. I'm much more likely to not call at all. And just yeah. if he's going to bugle, I'm going to move in. Um, and then maybe, you know, to create that shot opportunity when I've closed the distance, yes, maybe I'll call. Um, to try and create that like immediate response, but I'm not going to be calling at that bull from hundreds of yards away or like across the draw just because he's talking and theoretically, maybe I can get him to respond. Right. Um, like that's, that's cool. It's like, Hey, I bugled and he responded great. It's like, I also realized that didn't help me kill an elk at that point. For sure. It's like, he almost kind of told you, Hey, I'm over here. There's no need to kind of try to like, maybe if you do the wrong bugle or something, he, he moves and then you just never find him. Yeah. And in general, it's it's like, why make him aware of your presence? Whether you are convincing enough that he thinks you're a bull or he might think, ah, I don't know, like that sounds like another hunter. Not that I'll sure. clearly think <laughs> in, in sure. exactly those terms, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm just much more likely sure. to like keep my presence to a minimum until I absolutely want to make my presence known. And hopefully that leads to a shot opportunity. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's some good stuff. Absolutely. Uh, plus I don't think I'm that good at bugling. So it's like, Oh, they're going <laughs> to, they're, they're going to spot me. They're going to, Hey, that's not real. <laughs> yeah. But dude, like even that, um, there's, there's definitely, yeah. It, I think there's some benefit to quote unquote being good at bugling. Um, for sure. Like hunting with guys like born and raised, like they can get more responses than I ever can. They, right they speak that language better than me at the same time. Like you can also sound terrible, but be on the right elk and it doesn't matter. And I've also have observed elk that unless I physically saw them with my own eyes, make that sound, I wouldn't think that was an elk. That was, that had to be a hunter. That sounded so weird or so bad. Yeah. And it's like, no, it actually was an elk. Yeah. So you mentioned before, wanting to do this trip with your dad didn't work out. He has his anniversary and all that. Right. You're not going with anybody else. You're just still like, I'm going, I'm going solo I'm making this happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I've invited quite a few people. Um, I got one, one buddy that I invited and he's, he's saying that he's going, but it's like, okay, I, has, I don't know if he's even training. And it's like, I don't know if he even remembers that he said he was going to go. I tried to reach out to him every once in a while, never get a text back. And so it's like, okay, I'm, I'm probably going by myself. And then, um, my cousin, my third, actually my third cousin, he's like, man, cause I like to go, I go on pretty good trips, usually 
once a year. Um, cause I, I don't, I save all my vacation for one time. And, mm. uh, so for this year, it'll be that hunt. And he's like, dude, if you ever go do something like that, let me know, I'll come with you. I'm like, cool. Well, actually in September, I'm going to Idaho for air hunt. You should come. And so we did a big, we did a zoom call just like this. And he was like, man, that's a lot of gear. <laughs> and I think kind of scared him away with all the gear that he's got to buy. I'm like, well, dude, you don't have to buy everything. You can go, you can get budget stuff here, budget stuff there, but uh, a lot of people say they want to go do it. And then when it comes time to do it, it just, it never happens, which I get it. It's not for everybody, but I, I was determined. I wasn't going to let other people's outlook on it, determine what I'm going to do. This is something that I want to do, whether it's with somebody or without somebody, I prefer my dad to come with me or my uncle to come with me. If it doesn't work out that way, I'm not going to let that affect my decision of actually going. Yeah. I love that, man. I mean, if you can get somebody and, and enjoy it and share it, including the, the not so enjoyable moments I have somebody to share with. That's great. But I love that you're committed sure. to going solo either way. Um, yeah. It's, it, it, it's something I've always wanted to do. And, and, and I, like I said earlier, the only thing you have to do is just go do it. I mean, it's a hard thing to do. And that, that's another part of wanting to go do is like, it's, it's something that's really hard to do. Not very many people like actually go out and do this and be successful. Then even, no matter what your definition of success is just going out there and camping for 10 days and not going back to your truck and sleeping in the truck. So it's mm-hmm. like, uh, this is something I want to do and I'm, I'm going to go do it. And that's just, not, that's just how, how my, my mindset is. Yeah. Aside from killing an elk, cause that would obviously be successful. Are you still thinking through and figuring out what your definition of success looks like beyond that? Man, yeah, I, I've I've got a couple couple goals of mine. One of the big ones is I, I want to have a really close encounter with with an elk, it, even if I don't get to kill one. And of course, that's that's the that's why I'm going out there to do it. But for me, success is if I can stalk something and get within shooting range. To me, that that's 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 something that I've never been able to do. And to me, that's that's a win. And for next year, okay, if I blow a shot or if I blow them out of this basin or if they smell me here, then at least I learned something for the next time I get that opportunity. So, mm-hmm. so my de- my definition of success is to really just learn something and try to have a close encounter with an animal. Your what is your so you mentioned gear before when you're talking with your cousin and how much was needed, and then you just mentioned sleeping away from the truck. Are you planning on essentially backpacking in, and if so? for a certain amount of time, you mentioned 10 days, are you planning on leaving the truck with 10 days worth of food or just three to four and coming back? Like the logistics of the hunt, what does that look like for you right now? Yeah. So for sure. So the big one, initially when I started, I want to do a hundred, it's going to be a backpack hunt. I wanted to pack in 10 days worth of food and, and, and just go and not come back and until the 10 days is up. But I'm trying to figure out weight wise and one other thing that I keep hearing you that you say on your podcast a lot is all these guys getting this mindset of, Hey, I'm going to hunt this particular spot, no matter if it's successful or not, because I want to be in that spot. And it's like, well, I have three or four spots picked out on my Onyx maps. And it's like all, all four of these spots. I don't want to just sit in one spot. If it's not producing any animals, I want to move to another one. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to bring between three and four days worth of food out. And then if I don't see any animals within those three or four days, I don't, don't want to waste my time there for, for an unsuccessful spot. And I just move to the next spot. I want to be pretty mobile. So I think that's how I'm going to want to do it. Um, probably the couple spots that I have are about three to four miles off the trail. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's how I'm going to do it. 
Yeah, I think it's a good a good choice for sure. I mean, as you said, probably for reasons I've you've already heard me discuss, but it is unless you know like, hey, I'm going into an area where I know there's animals that I will be hunting animals. Like if you know that, then great, go in there with seven or ten days worth of stuff and spend your time sure. actually hunting. Um, but if it's like I'm completely new to this country, I think this looks good. Let's go in here and see if I can find something. It's a big investment to do that with 10 days on your back versus three. Um, and so especially not only from not only from finding animals, but just even the opportunity to learn more country, right? Like if you have 10 days to hunt and it's your first time up in this area and you can have the opportunity to be in three different spots, you're going to just learn a lot more. And yes, there's something to be said for like, learning one area incredibly well but again keep in mind what what do you mean by area like in my mind you in a unit for 10 days but hunting three or four maybe different areas of that unit is still focused on one unit and learning that unit well so absolutely i wouldn't say leave elk if you go in somewhere it's like oh yeah there's elk here but i want to go find a new area yeah no hunt the elk that are there (laughs) but like worst case scenario you go in with three days and on day three you're into elk Man, boogie back out to the truck, get a few more days of food and come back in there. You know, that's Absolutely. worst case scenario. Absolutely. And, and you say that learning, learning that unit. So, so I guess my kind of plan is I want to hunt this same unit for, for years to come because, okay, I get 10 days this year in this unit, but that 10 days, I should be able to, to gain some knowledge of that unit and then use it for next year. And then that next year I keep learning about that same unit. And then the next year I go to it and it just keeps compounding. And then eventually I feel like I'll be successful in that unit. As long as I keep sticking with that unit and keep learning that unit, learn the, learn the habits of the elk and the bears in, in that, in that unit. I, I don't know. I think that's just how my mindset is with it. And I want to hunt that particular unit in different spots in it just to learn as much of it as possible. Just like you said. And learning a unit is yeah, very much obviously learning what the animals are doing, but it's learning what hunters are doing. It's learning what is good and not good access points. Like it's, it's the big picture. Um, that's one thing I've realized too, is like, I've gone into stuff previously, so focused on just the animals and had ton of vision on that. And obviously that's the primary objective. Um, but thinking about learning the area means more than just learning the animals. It means those other things I mentioned, hunting pressure, access, what is good and isn't, um, the bigger patterns of why animals may be here in certain times and there in certain times, like in different parts of the unit, um, maybe miles and miles apart, for example. So like piecing that whole picture together, um, it takes time. But as you said, like if you focus over a few hunts, a few years, et cetera, in an area that does hold game, it's just a matter of learning it. You're going to be way better off typically than like bouncing around to a different place necessarily every year. Right. For sure. And that's, I've heard a lot of people say that. So that's what kind of was like, man, these guys know what they're talking about. That would be foolish not to, not to take that advice and listen to them that way. So have you ever spent, uh, not even 10 days, but like three days by yourself without people? Yeah. So actually, um, Two years ago, right before the pandemic, it was uh, I almost got stuck in New Zealand because they were shutting their borders down from the, oh, from wow. the pandemic. Yeah, so that would have been a rough day. But um, I spent two weeks in New Zealand uh, about two years ago by myself. Um, I was overlanding, so I had a tent on my on my uh, on my truck. 
which was an amazing experience, but I just did that by myself and did all these cool off-road uh, trails and stuff. So uh, I usually do all of my trips by myself, but um, as far as camping goes, that, that was a big one. Yeah. It been camping for 14 days. I feel like we could start a new podcast just about that trip. Oh man. <laughs> dude. And, and what's crazy is now that I realized, because now that I've really dug into the hunting rolls, like, man, I was just in like one of the prime spots to kill an amazing red stag. Yeah. And I didn't even go do that. I'm like, come on, man. I did do some fly fishing there, which was incredible. But um, man, that that's that's another dream of mine is go actually back to New Zealand and, and get a red stag. I think that that'd be something awesome. That would be. Now I'm curious, like you say overlanding over there with a rig. Yeah. Is that something I, I'm assuming maybe you didn't ship a rig over there. You like did a rental over there. Yeah. So I, I did a lot of Googling because I was like, man, this year I want to do New Zealand. It looks beautiful there. So I found this cool company. I don't even know if they exist anymore after the pandemic, but it's just one dude and he was the coolest dude in the world, man. He's a surfer bro. And he had these super cool trucks. And then he picked up, a, I picked up a Nissan patrol from him. It was a two door. It was like a Land Cruiser style car, but it was a Nissan. And um, he, man, he had a refrigerator in the back of it. He had the rooftop tent. He had a cooker in the back of him. Like, man, this is everything you need. And it was awesome. So I just took that thing and I drove all around the North and South Island. Um, it was a right-hand drive, which was fun. And it was a stick and through the mountains and it was a diesel. So it was, that was a cool little car, man. I'll have to, I'll email you a picture of, of the, the truck. Yeah, please do. That sounds yeah. like such a cool trip. It was amazing, man. That's uh, and that's kind of another thing that kind of helped with this. Like, man, okay, I can make it out there by myself. Granted, I had a lot more stuff that I could use. It's like, I can, I can do it here in Idaho. It's going to be hard. It's hopefully not going to be too cold because I, I do not do good with cold. I hate the cold, being from Houston, of course. But it, it's, it's possible. I can do this. And that trip kind of really, really helped me make this decision as well. It is, man. Like that's such a, that's such a head start. Um on just this idea of adventure, having the confidence to put a plan together on your own and just go for it and mm -hmm. deal with what comes, right? Like yeah, backcountry hunting, especially as you're beginning, I mean, really is always this way, but especially as you're beginning um, and then especially doing it solo. Like it's, it's, that's a huge hearing that you've done that trip. Uh, makes me feel entirely different about your experience going into this than not having <laughs> done the New Zealand trip. And obviously yeah. that has nothing to do with hunting, but just this whole idea of, yeah, this guy from Texas said he's going to the mountains for 10 days by himself. Right. And I'm not saying that you right. couldn't do it if you didn't have that New Zealand experience. I just think that the New Zealand experience has given you a foundation for that's sure. Going to enable to you, that's going to enable you to do this trip with I don't even want to say more success. Cause again, when we say more success, we're talking maybe. about killing an elk, but yeah, like more confidence, more ability to actually last the 10 days with yeah. the highs and the lows and not go, I had no idea what it was like to be like by myself on day three in the mountains. I'm out of here. I'm going back to Texas. Yeah. And that's the thing that I'm thinking about. So, okay, man. So in, in that trip in New Zealand, it's like, that's like by day three or four, it's like, I start getting lonely. I was like, man, and it, I have to remind myself why I'm doing this. Okay. So I'm going out here to go kill an amazing animal and, and go into his habitat and, and see if I can win at the same time though. It's more than just that. It's like experiencing probably some of the most beautiful country in the world, getting to go through all that, those mountains. And I like to take pictures too. So I'll bring a camera with me and take some pictures. So it's more than just, more than just the hunt. And, and I have to 
remind myself that there's other reasons why I'm doing this and it'll keep me going. Same thing with the New Zealand trip. You get lonely and man, just go out there and go fishing or something. I'm going to bring a fishing pole with me too. So I like it. Yeah. So, um, you mentioned having three or four spots in this unit that you're heading to that you're interested in hunting. How did you narrow those down? Like that whole idea of e-scouting and understanding, I, you know, this is my first elk hunt, but I think this looks like a good spot to go find some elk. What did, what were you trying to piece together in that plan? Man. So the, the really went into it completely blind, honestly. And, uh, so I read a couple articles. I think I read one on, on y'all's website. And then I read one on Meteor's website about how to read a topo map and, and what these little different things on the topo map mean. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna start looking for saddles and some, and some, uh, benches and stuff, stuff like that. And I just want to plan around those. So what I would do is like, okay, I want to find a big tall vantage point that way I can glass up. And from there, I want to, I picked out like a, I think it's a 19,000 square mile or something like that. Maybe that's too big. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but this little area is okay. I just want to walk from here and there's a lot of trees here, but there's, there's a lot of edges of trees with basins and, and flat areas where I think, okay, maybe the elk are sleeping here and they're eating here. So if I can come around this side, if the wind's right, maybe I can run into something or that's kind of how I really just picked up with the scouting. I was planning on doing an actual trip. And then for some reason, man, the flight started getting ridiculously expensive going up to Idaho, Idaho from Houston. It's like, ah, it's, I'm not going to spend a thousand dollars for a three day trip real quick. When I'm going in September, I'll just, I'm just going to e-scout, but yeah. I think there's a huge benefit to boots on the ground. And, and ideally that's what I wanted to do, but it just, it didn't work out that way, unfortunately. So you've just been with the Onyx maps and then, uh, what's the other one? Go hunt. I like theirs too. Their map's a pretty good map too. So I kind of use the two and, and just kind of looking for like flat spots and where I think elk might be bedding and, and feeding. Cool, man. You, um, mentioned flying. I didn't think to ask this, but what are you doing for the actual hunt? Are you driving up there? You're going to fly for that? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to drive up there. So it's a 32 hour drive. Wow. <laughs> So I plan on driving straight through and hopefully, and depends on, on what that is, but my work schedule is pretty, pretty tight. So what I'm going to do is like after work on Friday, I'm going to just head up there, hopefully get there by Sunday night, camp out there. And Monday morning would be the first day I hunt. I'm going the second two weeks of September. So from September 17th to I'll be back here, like the first or third or something like that of October. So okay. it'll be four days of complete driving and then 10 days of, of hunting. Yeah, dude. That's, I'm like getting excited for you. Just hearing about <laughs> it. I can't wait to hear the stories that are going to come of it, man. Yeah, man. It's I'm super excited. The reason I decided to drive those because man, okay. If I'm successful and I get an animal, uh, I don't know anybody in Idaho, so yeah. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I, I figured I'd just keep a couple coolers in the truck full of ice and, and, and go from there. And then I, man, I forget what I read about dry aging your meat and stuff like that in a cooler and re recycling the ice. I'm like, you know, that sounds pretty easy. I might do that. And that'd be easier to do as well, especially drive it back to Houston with the coolers full of ice every once in a while, just stop and recycle the ice. So I think that's, that's the plan. If I, if I'm successful. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Plus shipping costs are ridiculous on meat. So it's like, uh, oh, all that. Right. So we're, I'm, I'm not sure exactly when this episode is going to be released. Um, should be in August, but as we're sitting here today, it's July 28th. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have six weeks, call it. Yep. What questions marks do you have that you're still 
either trying to figure out or just kind of curious about with this whole experience? Yeah, for sure. So I have a couple of them written down here. So the big one for me is um, <laughs> field dressing this thing. And so if I'm successful on this elk and, and, and I get something, so it seems like the gutless method is the easiest way to do it, especially being solo. Mm-hmm. Um, my big thing being here in Houston and being in Texas and killing animals here, we have to clean that thing as fast as possible. I mean, it's been a hundred degrees here for the last two weeks. So you leave that animal out there for an hour and your meat's done. And it's like, I don't know how it is up there. I don't know what the weather's going to be like. It seems like it's going to be halfway cool and not super hot. So you have mm-hmm. any tips on, on, on where to store that meat if I'm going back and forth to the truck or, and also what kind of game bags to get and um, which method of, of field dressing do you, do you normally use? Yeah. Good stuff. Um, yeah. So gutless method, I would recommend for sure. Um, especially being solo. Um, and there's, there's some great YouTube videos on that. I think there's one that's in the university of elk hunting course, I believe. I think so. Um, I know that hush has a video on YouTube. I'm sure there's a bunch out there, but those are just ones I know of. And also keep in mind if, if you do get back on YouTube and you see a gutless method, but it's on a mule deer shoot a whitetail for that example, like same process. So don't feel like it. If you see this great video and it's not an elk, I would still maybe watch that video because it's okay. going to translate. Yeah, that's um, that's great because I've, I've saw I've seen that. I'm like, oh, well, that's not elk. That's not exactly what I'm going to be doing. So if it's pretty similar, that that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, definitely check it out. I, it's just a difference in scale, essentially. Um, okay. A couple things since you're solo in particular that come to mind is I um, I would have a way to have some extra rope doesn't need to be big rope, like just paracord, um, and be able to kind of like, say, for example, you're doing the gutless method, you're trying to remove a leg, being able to tie that leg up in and hold it up in position while you're working on say the underside of it, um, is going to be so helpful. Um, you know, there's like breaking down an animal with a guy, there's times where you're both working independently, but there's definitely certain points like you know, the rear quarter, you start to skin it and you kind of work on the, what's the exposed or the high side of it all Mm -hmm. doable by yourself when it comes to getting underneath it and then trying to get into that hip joint. If I'm with a guy, even though I could fight it and do it by myself, I'm like, Hey, will you pull this leg up and hold it real quick? Right. So that same thing of, yeah, like essentially get some rope and some basic knots and make yourself an extra hand to hold that leg up there (laughs) off to a tree or something. Yeah. Um, one thing I carry, it's really, it's a really small, it's not a regular carabiner, but it's called a figure nine. Um, if you look up like figure nine carabiner, I think night eyes and I T E I Z E make some in different sizes. You really only need a small one. Um, and basically it, it helps you secure things that you could do with like knots and tying stuff off. But I've just found that when you're breaking down meat and now you have bloody messy hands rather than tying and tying knots, like having this little figure nine carabiner basically allows you to set and hold tension on that cord really easily. Um, so that's something I always carry if I'm solo and is really helpful. Okay. Um, that's, that's, that's great. I'll, I'll definitely look into that for sure. Yeah. So do gutless be able to tie it off. And then I would say, um, take your time, man. Like, Yes, I understand where you're coming from. Texas, heat, rush, get all this meat off in an hour. 
And when you walk up on an elk for the first time, you're going to realize just how big they are and how daunting this job is, especially when you're by yourself. Yeah. But it's also the last time that you want to be in a hurry and be rushing and not paying attention to what you're doing. Right. Super sharp knife. You're probably tired. You're probably a bit amped up on adrenaline. Your legs hurt. (laughs) Your legs hurt. Your back's going to be hurting once you start bending over and cutting this thing up. So even though you want to take care of it, be quick, be efficient. It's like probably one of the most dangerous aspects of an entire 10 day hunt potentially is breaking down an elk. Um, okay. So just take time. You're solo. You got a sharp knife in your hand. Just pay attention to what you're doing. Perfect. Um, what else? Oh, so yeah. So take your time. Game bags important. Um, you know, the thing to keep in mind with game bags is they are going to come in not only different materials, but different different sizes for different intentions, right? So it's one thing if you were to know that you're going to completely bone out an elk, you Mm -hmm. can maybe have a specific set of game bags for that. But if say you weren't paying attention, you bought those game bags that are meant for boned out meat, and now you're going to quarter an elk and try and get a rear quarter in, you're like, oh, that's not going to fit my game bag. (laughs) Right, right. Um, So just make sure you know what you're getting there. Um, There's a lot of good ones out there one that's just super top of mind and I've used quite a bit is from Mark Galli, A-R-G-A-L-I. Um, I know Brad over there. Again, he makes basically a smaller kit meant for quarter deer or boned out elk. And then the bigger kit that is meant for um, elk, moose, et cetera. So okay. I would recommend just that bigger kit. I unfortunately don't remember okay. what it's called, Yeah, uh, but it's, he has, it's super self-explanatory there. Perfect. Perfect. That's good. Um, other random stuff, just make sure that before you do start breaking down an elk, you have everything kind of laid out and ready, meaning before you get messy hands or like you have a quarter ready to go in a game bag, don't be like, oh, shoot, my game bags are in the bottom of my pack. Now I got to dig through my gear with bloody hands, right? Like that sounds, duh, of course, but if you're not thinking ahead and you're just in the excitement heat of the moment, sometimes you yeah, you're in the moment. It's like, dang, I got it. And then you have to stick your bloody hands and all your clean clothes and get your yeah. all bloody and all that. Yeah. That makes sense. So yeah, like basically the first thing I do when I get to an animal, obviously kind of soak in the moment, do whatever. If you want photos, if you're going to, you know, share with a buddy, like tell the story, whatever, that's cool. But basically before I actually break a knife out, I kind of get everything out that I need. That's going to be game bags. All times I'll have my wet wipes out, my knife out, my sharpener if I need it. Um, I'll put away all the other gear I don't need. Um, a lot of times I'll go ahead and like pre-break down my pack. So um, put all the gear I don't need back in my bag in my pack. Go ahead and detach the bag from the frame, like expose that load shelf so you're ready to set things out. I just try and mm-hmm. do as much of that ahead of time um, yeah. as possible. And then potentially even depend on the country that you're in like no right away where am i putting this meat um and this is a very situational but do you anticipate hanging it close to where you're at for a while and maybe coming back to some of it tomorrow um yeah, if that's the case you know i would probably look at okay what trees are around me that i could use for example um so but yeah in terms of keeping it cool um it's all the typical stuff you hear about like Obviously, try and keep it in the shade. Mm-hmm. Um, get it hung if you can. Um, if 
there's like a, a little creek draw or creek bottom that's even better a lot of times it'll be both a bit shady but you also get like the thermic effect from the water um now this might be a dumb question you hang that meat in a in a meat bag right yeah so like yeah. um not every game bag is going to have them but like those ones i mentioned from our galley um the the drawstring that's in those is actually strong enough where you can use the drawstring itself to secure to a branch okay um or obviously if you need to get it higher and and do more of like a pulley style setup like add rope to it and then pull the rope up pulling the game bag up you can just connect it um straight to the game bag correct um it on like especially a rear quarter um you know, you kind of have that that joint at the hock where you can run rope through the quarter itself and hang it from that. So that's definitely an option. Um, yep. But if the game bag's built well with good materials, you can suspend it just from the game bag itself. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's that's real good. That answered a lot of questions for me. That really, yeah. That, yeah, that answered a good chunk of them. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, um, again, like everything from here becomes situational dependent of, where are you? What type of day or what time of day is it? Um, what, are, what are the conditions, right? Um, in general, you know, you're solo, right? So count on minimum of three trips, unless you want to try and be superhuman and do it in two, that would be, um, no, I'm, I'm not, not a superhuman. <laughs> I'm cool with four trips if I need it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like three trips minimum, like, especially on a mature bowl. Um, yeah. So, um, packing out half an elk is something I've done and try not to do ever again. So yeah, we yeah. Count on three I mean, it's cool minimum. to say that you did it, but it's like, man, when you're doing it, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And keep that in mind too. It's something that gets like easy to overlook, like where you're hunting. It's easy to go out and go, Oh yeah, I'm just five miles from the truck. It's like, okay, cool. Great. I'm also solo. So now if I have, now if I kill an elk, okay, I'm back to the truck with some meat, that's five miles back to the meat that's 10 miles back out with load two. That's 15 miles back to the meet again to get trip three. That's 20 miles Yep. yep. back to the truck back again with load three. That's 25 miles, right? So if you're five miles and only quote unquote, only do three trips, you're at 25 miles, 15 of which was with a very heavy pack. Like, yes. so is that doable? You can decide, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's doable, but I don't want to yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's easy to throw around mileage as we're sitting in the comfort of our homes, talking on a podcast, like, yeah, it's five miles. No big deal. For sure. Especially when you're solo, realizing that consequences of mileage is important. Yeah. Yep. Um, I guess one other question that I did have that kind of on a different, different note, um, you ever have a hard time sleeping up there? And if you do, do you take any kind of like Tylenol PM or anything like that? And then do you have issues waking up in the morning? It, it varies a little bit. I, I'm a tosser and turner by nature, even at home. Um, it's not a common for me, like in my bed, which I absolutely love at home. I'm really comfortable to wake up consciously multiple times a night, move positions, mm-hmm. go back to sleep. So I do the same thing okay. um, out there, maybe even worse. Right. Right. Um, but then at the same time, I will say there's also nights where it's like, it's cold outside, but I'm cozying my sleeping bag, fresh air. And sometimes I sleep better than ever, even if I were at home in my bed. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of variability. Um, okay. I've, um, I've taken melatonin at times in the back country and I don't normally ever take 
anything at home. So that's been somewhat effective. Um, okay. A lot of times what I'll do is just have like uh, a Tylenol PM or ibuprofen PM. And often I'll only take like half of one. And it just gives me that little bit of like, not even so much helping me fall asleep, but kind of helping me stay asleep. And then yeah. it's also for me, not so much that I feel groggy or anything at all in the morning. Um, so that's usually my go-to. Like we just did our death hike earlier this month. Um, yeah. And that it was awesome, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it was different because it it never got dark, right? So yeah, that's I, weird. I've never experienced that. Yeah, I proactively took like half of a um an ibuprofen PM and slept great each night. I mean, we were only sleeping five hours, but I passed out hard and slept great and woke up feeling good. So for sure, um, obviously, that's personal and unique to you know, it's medicine, right? So sure. your body and what you're used to, but that's what I do most of the time is just take like half of an ibuprofen PM. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was just trying to, uh, the worst thing I could do is, okay, I'm tossing and turning one night, can't sleep. I don't want to take something. And then the next morning, just be droggy and not be able to hike when I need to hike or anything like that. So just kind of curious on your, yeah. on your opinion. And some guys, I mean, some guys do earplugs. Um, I don't personally, um, some guys can't do earplugs because they can't stand the thought of being in a tent and not knowing if there's a bear crawling around them or something <laughs> like it's in their head. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it maybe have those, like maybe they'll help you, um, little stuff like that, but, um, yeah, it's just figuring out what works for you. It's funny you say that my mom's like, so what are you going to do if you're asleep in a tent and you hear a bear? I'm like, mom, you realize that the chances of that happening are super slim. Granted, I'm out there in their 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 area, but then she puts those thoughts in my mind. So it's like, man, I want to be out there and then hear my mom saying, oh, is there a bear out there? <laughs> yeah, dude, I would much rather sleep in a tent in like in the back country than sleep in a tent at a campground in oh, terms yeah. of bears, right? Like the wild bears that aren't used to being around people and aren't they don't see people as a source of food, not meaning they're eating people, but knowing that, right, okay, right, where right. there's people, there's food and trash and whatever. Um, if you're out like, yeah, just in the mountains, not at a campground, not at a known area, you're a, a pretty foreign presence to them. Um, yeah, that's when you're honestly safest um, in terms of being in bear country. For sure. Especially, I, have- I mean, for black bears, right? Yeah. Um, I got one last question for you. So, when, when you're, when you're driving, I assume you drive out there, right? Into the mm-hmm. West. So you ever have issues with leaving your truck on the side of the road or anything like that? Cause me being here in downtown Houston, me personally, my truck has been stolen from my driveway twice in the last three months. And it's <laughs> like, I, I'm, I, that's, that thoughts in the back of my mind, just because I'm from Houston and mm-hmm. that happens here. And I don't know what it's like up there in Idaho or Wyoming or anywhere out there, leaving your truck for multiple days and, you ever had anybody mess with your truck or do you have any tips or anything uh, that you would suggest doing or leaving or leaving a note saying, Hey, listen, I'm hunting or don't leave a note. So somebody knows that you're coming right. back four days. It's like, what's the yeah. right answer on that? Yeah. I wouldn't leave a note. Right. You don't want to tell them what your plans are. Um, you know, a truck could be on the side of road and literally it's a guy day hunting versus yeah. Hey, I'll be back here in five days. Feel free to look around. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's uh, like <laughs> it's advertisement. Yeah. Take the basic precautions of um, keeping any viables out of sight, out of mind, but I don't at the same time worry very much about like somebody truly breaking in. Right. Like I'm not going to tempt anyone by leaving 
a rifle sitting on a back seat or something, right? Or sure, computer, sure. whatever. Um, and if you have a camp and have some stuff like set out at a camp, you know, I typically try and put away stuff that really matters and lock it in the truck. But I don't, I don't worry about it. I just take those basic precautions. I mean, the only the only experience that I've had is uh, one hunt in particular. We were we were doing a combination of backpacking and then kind of like we talked about being super mobile. And me and my buddy had went out to Colorado and we were pulling this small off-road trailer that I have and it has like a rooftop tent and everything. And so there was a couple nights we got back super late, slept in that before driving to a new area. Um, anyway, we left a, what was it? Oh, it was like a Reinhardt 18 to one archery target out. Okay. Um, and we had it like tucked, like sitting under the trailer and somebody actually took that. Oh man. But what was funny is in the trailer, this little off-road trailer, which we didn't lock or do anything with and it was open, was more valuable items like a small generator and some other stuff. <laughs> it was just like, oh, somebody man. took this target and then, you know, if they were a thief that knew what they were doing, like probably unfortunately this was a bad hunter who wanted an archery target versus like yeah. someone going, yeah, I'm going to take this generator and some other stuff to the pawn shop. Yeah, it had to have been a hunter because a, a thief, like just a normal common thief wouldn't have been like, oh, what am I going to use this for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. yeah, not something to worry about as long as you take basic precautions. Okay. Well, perfect. That's 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 good information. Cool, man. Yeah, I was just looking at, like my list of questions for you. I think we covered it well. I'm really yeah. excited to talk again in a couple months and hear how it all goes, man. Absolutely, man. Again, I really appreciate you having me on here. The, the the information you've given me has been great and answered a lot of questions for me. So it's cool because you can listen to as many podcasts as you can. And everybody asks all these great questions like, man, I got this question. And I actually got to ask those today. So I really, really appreciate your your knowledge and again, having me on and let me talk about it. Yeah, you bet. Well, just a plug since we were talking about listener questions. Uh, if you guys are listening to this, just have listening to this and have questions look for the link in the show description uh, that says leave a message and you can use whatever device you're on to leave us an audio message for one of our future Q&A episodes. But right now we'll wrap this up, man. Taylor, good luck out there. Enjoy it. And we'll talk here in a couple months. Thanks, Mark. Have a good one, man. Well, that's a wrap for today's conversation with Taylor. We'll be getting him back on later this year to hear how that hunt went. Once again, if you have any questions for us, look for a link in the show description that says leave us a message, or you can also send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you could just tell a friend about it, share it with them, or leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you're using. Finally, if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.